We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Pretty much every genocide of the 20th century, what one of the things we saw was neighbors turning on neighbors. So um, Yazidis feel immense distrust towards the local kind of tribes and families that live around the region. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Liam Duffy, who works for the Counter-Extremism Project. And we take a look at his research on Western foreign fighters and the Yazidi genocide. This conversation was recorded last year, so there may be a few points that feel a little dated and some points that may feel a little prescient. Just before we begin, a few things. First of all, we now have a website for the podcast. It's secretsandspies.com, so please go and check it out. One of the cool features of the website is that it highlights all your reviews. So I've been saying for a while now, please, if you want to support this podcast, please leave a review. So the algorithms of your podcast app really like reviews, and so it helps people find this podcast. So your review, not only can it help people find the podcast, but now you can actually read it on the website on the review page. So thank you very much for everybody who has left a review. There's been some very kind ones, and there's been a few unkind ones as well. But I appreciate that everybody's taking a chance to actually engage with the podcast and leave a review. So thank you very much. If you also want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. For £3 a month, you can become a friend of the podcast. And I will now send you a pack of four Secrets and Spies branded coasters. So if you need something for your glass of scotch or for your martini or for your coffee, then these Secrets and Spies coasters are for you. If you don't wish to become a subscriber, that's absolutely fine. You can go to our Redbubble store and you can get branded coasters, cups, tote bags and even water bottles. So please do check that out. Any purchase obviously goes towards helping the podcast. And lastly, don't forget to watch my film The Dry Cleaner. It's available on Apple TV and Amazon Prime. I think it's about £2, which is about 2 $3. It was my first attempt at spy fiction, and I hope it's not my last attempt at spy fiction. I am planning on other projects at the moment, feature films and TV shows, so watch this space, and hopefully in the not-too-distant future there might be some very cool news about that. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this show and I appreciate all your support. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Liam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. The most obvious place I should probably start is, um, so I do a lot of work for um, the Counter Extremism Project, which is a New York-based. Yeah. I've got offices in Berlin, in Brussels, and now in London as well. So I'm I'm a strategic advisor for them uh, with Ian Aitchison, I think you might know of. He's a uh, former prison governor and led, led a government review on extremism. Mm-hmm. So he and I are kind of the London representation for the Counter Extremism Project. Mm-hmm. But I'm also... I never like to use this word because it sounds a bit, uh, I don't know, it sounds a bit over the top and a bit a bit cooler than it is, but I guess I'm a consultant as well. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I do like I do different projects um, sometimes around the world if I can do. So and before COVID hit, I was working on a training project in East Africa for yeah. civil society leaders, um, trying to get to grips with kind of Al-Shabaab recruitment and radicalization. So I'm sure your listeners will know Al-Shabaab is the Al-Qaeda-linked fr- franchise in, in East Africa. So um yeah, that that kind of thing. Lots of training, lots of research. Um, anything I can get poke my nose in and make some trouble in, 
basically. So, Liam, you've released this fascinating and horrifying report titled Western Foreign Fighters and the Yazidi Genocide, and you released that through the Counter-Extremism Project. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what the Counter-Extremism Project is? Sure, yeah. So, um, so I mean, the, the organisation calls itself an international policy organisation, but I, I guess to, to, the, to the lay audience, that means it's a think tank. Um, so, uh, as, as cringy as it sounds, a think and a do tank, I guess, because we do uh, we do training and different like actual kind of delivery of projects through uh, governments in Europe, and um, we've worked on projects in Africa as well, uh, and, and in the Balkans and places like that. So, so kind of like building capacity for local actors on the ground. Um, but I think I think mainly it is a think tank. So, um, produce a lot of research on various forms of extremism. Um, there's a big focus from the organisation on combating terrorist content online. Um, so that's always that's always something that that uh, that is right at the top of the agenda for the organisation. But other than that, I think it's you know they they've a lot of work done on the far right, a little bit on the on far left, and we're we're trying to do a bit more on that actually uh, imminently. Um, and a lot on well, my my personally, my focus is on Islamist groups and jihadist groups. Um, so I don't know too much about the other you know groups that fall under the other umbrellas, but. Um, yeah, so all sorts. Anything anything that's extremism or counterterrorism related, um, you can probably bet that we've had some sort of um some sort of say on it or done some sort of research on it. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So you start your report with this absolutely horrific story about this poor five year old Yazidi girl who is chained outside in the scorching heat. And she's been chained outside because she was ill and wet her bed. And her mother is also chained with her and ends up having to watch her daughter die. And this sort of horrific behaviour, sadly, is not uncommon when it regards to ISIS and the Yazidis. Can you please talk to us a little bit about what the Yazidis went through at the hands of ISIS? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, as you said, it's horrifying and uh, and, and harrowing. Um, well, th- so maybe, maybe just... A- for the benefit of listeners who maybe aren't uh, familiar apart from kind of the headlines that I'm sure most people remember from around 2014. Um, so the Yazidis are a really small religious minority um, in the Middle East. They're, they've got a population around Sinjar in Iraq, but there's Yazidis in Syria, in Iran, in Turkey as well, um, in Armenia. So there's the small kind of pockets of communities here and there. So they, for, for a long time, they have... Um, they, they, They've they've been kind of marginalised. You know, they don't have the same in Iraq. They, don't, they haven't had the same kind of educational opportunities. They haven't had the same kind of state funding into um, local infrastructure. So, really, kind of um, deprived and marginalised community. And and I mean, uh, Yazidis count themselves. I think I think having suffered over seventy attempts to wipe them off the face of the planet in their history, um, according to their own kind of historical records. So. And um, what ISIS did to them, in a way, wasn't new. It was, it was, uh, you know, another another attempt to destroy um, Yazidism and Yazidi people. Um, so yeah, so w- what happened with ISIS was so obviously everybody everybody remember that that awful summer of 2014 mm. um, when I think June 2014 was the Caliphate declaration, wasn't it? And then around that time, you had the the videos of the Western hostages, James Foley, starting with James Foley getting um, beheaded on the internet. Um, and it was just, I mean, I'm sure you remember just how horrific that period was. It was just, uh, it was just deeply unsettling. Um, then you, you kind of thought that, you know, how much more depraved can it get? And true to ISIS style, it got more depraved with what they did with the Yazidis a couple of months later in August uh, of 2014. So, um, so yeah, like I said, I mean, this is a kind of vulnerable, marginalized, small community uh, in Iraq and ISIS kind of descended on them around Sinjar. Um, and I mean, we can get more into the, the details, not very nice detail a bit. Um, but they, they, they kind of descended on defenseless community. Um, every man and every woman who they kind of deemed wasn't fit for sexual enslavement was executed on the spot, um, thrown into mass graves, mass graves that are still being, um, discovered to this day. Um, and then women and children were rounded up and kidnapped and trafficked and, and enslaved through, ISIS territory, which I'm, I'm sure you remember was kind of covering an area bigger than Great Britain at the time um, across Iraq and Syria. So, 
uh, yeah, uh, that's that's the kind of brief overview, but we can definitely get into more of um, what actually went on. Don't feel you have to hold back. This particular podcast is focused at adults, and I just really want to get a true picture of the true horrific nature of ISIS. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't want to really say this because it sounds self-indulgent, but I mean, the whole time I was doing the research... Um, you know, and this is this isn't this isn't kind of stealing valor of trauma or anything. That's far from what I'm doing. But but there was just kind of a, a I just kind of had a deeply unsettled and uneasy feeling the entire time I was doing the research because it was just some of the some of the details that you read, the kind of survivor accounts, and even what what people who joined the group were saying themselves. Uh, you know, they were openly talking about what they were doing to Yazidis on social media um, and in their own kind of Islamic State's official propaganda. Um, and it's just, you, you know, you're reading these things and you just kind of have to pinch yourself and, and remind yourself what well, this really happened to other, other human beings. And it, it, there's this, there's this kind of idea that the genocide is this thing that happened in the history books or, you know, like we're, we kind of live in this more enlightened age, I guess. Um, um, or it's, or it's something that happens to far away people that we don't really understand or know much about. So maybe, you know, you know, like like happened in Rwanda and places like that. Um, but I think, think one thing I really wanted to get across in this report is that actually large numbers of our own citizens were involved in the atrocities against um, Yazidis. So I think that that was really what, you know, I, you've read it, as I said in it, it's not a kind of deep in-depth academic study. It's just a, a really to nudge the needle of debate and a reminder that but you know, our own citizens kind of have blood on their hands for what, what they did to Yazidis. And, and not only that, but in a lot of cases, they were boasting about it as well, you know, kind of openly, openly bragging about um, raping Yazidi women, uh, indoctrinating Yazidi uh, children. And it wasn't just, you know, we're not just talking about men here. It was women were posting about this on social media as well who joined ISIS. So um, it's just the most kind of just barbarism on an unimaginable scale and depth. Uh, but people who you know, went to our universities or worked in our offices or, you know, looks so, you know, uh, people who grew up trying to want to be a rapper in Nice or Paris, you know, ordinary people. Um, you know, if we, we think of ourselves from this more, more enlightened society where these things would never happen, but, but ordinary people from, you know, our own societies did, did go and take part in this, this kind of bottomless inhumanity. Um, and that's something I think we're in danger of forgetting. Uh, or in danger of, or is it at least in danger of being written out of the kind of historical consciousness on this mm. um, for a few different reasons, which again we can we can explore. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, we'll yeah. definitely talk about that in a little bit because there is there is definitely I think um, I don't know when it comes to debates around ISIS, there are some people who have the opinion that it's somehow racist to talk about ISIS. And um, and I find and I just find that attitude very strange. I even remember when I was trying to make my film, The Dry Cleaner. Um, once somebody asked me if it was racist to make a film about Islamic extremism, and I was just like, oh, you know, it's an interesting question that one. <laughs> and it, and I and I think it blocks people from properly discussing some of the things that need to be discussed. Oh, without doubt, without doubt. Yeah, it's a. Re- I think that's that's a huge problem, and it's really. It's really prevalent, and it and it kind of, I mean, I, I think there are some nefarious actors who who do that. Kind of, there are oh, obviously there are there are the out and out jihadi groups, but there are also Islamist groups that operate in the West as well, which are not not jihadist groups, but they, you know, they specialize in kind of muddying the water around these topics and and making it difficult for people to talk about through through racism and Islamophobia accusations. But I think the the, the, the broader problem is a kind of. Um, I, I I call it. Have you have you heard the term othering before? Yes, kind of, yes, yeah, yeah. So I think there's kind of an inverse, like liberal othering here, going on. So it's like we 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 kind of don't want to or can't hold our own citizens to the same legal and moral standards um, because you know, and it's not even in every case, but often case that you know they're perceived to be from a, a marginalized minority community, and it's actually like, well, no, you know, if we if we view people as as equal citizens before the law and 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 hold them to the same moral standard we we can escape that attitude and i think i i've kind of used the expression on uh, just specifically on the yazidi genocide it's kind of a a wrong for the yazidis it's really unfortunate because they're they're the wrong type of victim and it's the wrong type of perpetrator um because what you said is absolutely right we we find it a lot easier to talk about other forms of 
extremism in some cases. Um, and but there is this kind of awkward, uncomfortable air around talking about Islamist or jihadist extremism, um, which is really unproductive. And actually, I think the worst one of the worst things about it has been that in a lot of Western countries, the far right has been able to capitalize on that. Oh yeah, definitely. They they take control of that narrative, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's this whole thing. I mean, one of one of the, um, I kind of snuck this line into an article that I hope I have coming out soon. But there's um, the whole the whole. I mean, I'm sure everybody who listens to this will be f- more than familiar with George Orwell. But I mean, he. I mean, he's he's so kind of unanimously revered that in, in one sense he is every kind of political faction across the spectrum kind of tr- tries to claim him. But there is also um, on the left, especially especially in the late 20th century, there was kind of, um, you know, he's still, his name was kind of still mud a little bit. And the reason for that was the, the, the assertion that he had, he had, in inverted commas, given ammunition to the enemy. So even though he was a fierce opponent of colonialism and fascism, he'd also been a tenacious critic of Stalinism and Soviet communism. Uh, and that was kind of an unforgivable sin for, pe- for some people on the left, that, you know, he had made it easier for the right uh, to, or the establishment to criticize kind of leftist ideas. Um, so I think you see, you see a really similar dynamic over Islamist extremism is like people don't want to talk about it because they're afraid of giving ammunition to the right. But actually what I think by not talking about it, you give more anim- ammunition to the far right than you ever would by talking about it. Because like you said, it allows them to snatch the narrative and say, these people don't care about these kind of atrocities that, that are happening. They don't care about, uh, you know, people getting killed by terror attacks and they just don't want to talk about this problem in a frank and open way. So, yeah, that leaves that just opens this kind of void and, and vacuum for the far right to fill. So, yeah, I think we're, sounds by the sounds of it, we're on the same page on that one. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. And it's been a concern of mine for years, to be honest. Because I mean, look, I mean, one of my motivations, I suppose, out of interest is, um, like many people, I personally would not want to be a victim of terrorism. I, the last thing I'd want is to kind of get blown up or stabbed or whatever going out somewhere um and and it's you know it's a public safety concern ultimately whether it be presented by islamic extremists far-right extremists we might have the return of the ira with what's going on in ireland at the moment um you know or it could be i don't know some sort of bader meinhof type far leftist extremists or even environmental extremists because i have a pet feeling that that that's going to be definitely something in the future we're going to see no, but I, I think you're right to bring it from. I think we can get lost in talking about abstracts a little bit and and try and trying to endlessly pursue kind of nuance in our judgment of this. But actually, you know, for a lot of people, don't see it like that and don't want to see it like that. And and yeah, the threat of terrorism is small, of course it is. But but you know, the the fear is very real. And 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 what happens to people is, you know, I mean, you could see, you know, Samuel Paty's murder in France um, in October 2020. I mean that was one death, but kind of the the nature of it and the issues that it invoked and the and the gruesome the gruesome kind of side to it, but you know, was really destabilizing. It's not just to France, but beyond its borders as well. So um, it's all very well talking about this in abstracts, but but it, you know, it's got a very very real impact on re- you know real people. So oh, very much so. I mean, I I know of um, not not sort of direct context but i've got friends of friends who were caught up in the dreadful events at uh, near borough market at london bridge and that terrible attack and uh you know we barely talk about that anymore um but yeah some horrific things happened and um you know and it's i i i have been to borough market often um and you know all it takes is to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and you know before you know it you're confronting you're on the front line on the war on terror so it's like it's pretty horrific but um so back to we'll go back to the Yazidis because i think this is a very important topic um but uh, thank you for your thoughts on what we just discussed there but um so why why did isis in particular target the Yazidis in the way that they did so yeah, it, it comes back to uh, the Yazidis' religious faith and religious practice. So, um, so Yazidism, as it's called. Um, I mean, this is this is fundamentally the entire reason that they were they were singled out for um, for extermination. Really, um, obviously, ISIS was unsuccessful in exterminating them ultimately, but but you know, large numbers of people lost their lives. Um, so Yazidis practice um, a, a pre-Islamic faith. Um, so, um, and this is one of the reasons uh, I did an event with Tom Holland, the historian, who was very interested in this subject when 
when the research came out. Yeah, and, I saw that. Was and, know, this is how he got into it. Oh, thank you. No. Um, yeah, he, he, that was how he got interested in it because he was kind of researching in the region the origins of Islam and how it kind of um, spread, spread throughout the Middle East. And, and he came across this, this pre-Islamic faith, Yazidism, this kind of, they were worshipping uh, you know, a, a kind of peacock um, prophet, angel. Um, and he was just became kind of fascinated by them. He had, he'd never heard of them before. And I, I think most people had, had never heard of them pre-2014 pre because it's such a small uh, community. Um, but unlike it kind of, uh, according to Islamic state ideology, um, you have, you have what they call the people of the book. So Christians and Jews, um, who te- as much as, as much as ISIS despises, uh, Christians and Jews technically under their caliphate, um, Christians and Jews are eligible to live under the protection, uh, under their protection, as long as they pay a, a, a tax, a, the jizya. Um, there, there are certain religious faiths that don't qualify for that. So, um, so the Yazidis were one of those um, faiths. So, according to their kind of ap- apocalyptic ideology, the what would happen was on Judgment Day, uh, ISIS would be, excuse me, well, not ISIS, the, the faithful as they see themselves, the co- kind of community of believers, would be made to answer for the continued existence of pre-Islamic faiths. Um, so, and this is another element to it. You know, it wasn't a, it, what happened wasn't a kind of spontaneous. Uh, you know, uprising or an opportunistic uh, attack. It was, you know, they knew that they were about to come into contact with these idiots because they were expanding their territory, and they they set their legal and theological scholars um, to work to determine what what would happen to these idiots um, once they conquered their territory. Um, and they came to the conclusion that they were eligible to be taken as sabaya, so slaves or kind of spoils of war. Um, so it was. Uh, I, I kind of put it like this: It was an attempt. It was an attempt to destroy the Yazidi community, uh, Yazidism, you know, the Yazidi population. Um, but it was also a kind of demolition of individual human beings as well. Um, so the the kind of destruction of the community apple happened on the level of um, you know, executing all the men on the spot. Uh, or I think in some cases they gave people the opportunity to convert, but that was that was less common than just straight executing people. Um, and then with the women, it was to take them as sex slaves um, and the children to indoctrinate them and, and raise them, you know, especially with the boys, it was to raise them as cubs of the caliphate, so the next generation of um, Islamic State soldiers. Um, so really, you just, you know, it's, it's treating the women that they captured on a level that completely demolished their their individuality and defiled them as human beings and and basically, you know, there's there's one of the so one of the most chilling testimonials I came across from a Yazidi for survival was she said she said there was nothing left to do to me, uh, and I, I don't know why. Like compared to compared to the kind of more graphic descriptions, that was that really stood out to me. It's just like how how much can you just destroy a human like an individual human being, and and other 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 elements as well. Um, there was a woman who describes when they were raping her daughter that she. Uh, her daughter just just went silent as though she was just kind of uh, just unconscious, but she was conscious and was aware of what was happening. And I just thought you've you've just so utterly degraded and defiled and defeated a fellow human being to get to that point. Um, so there's that on the individual level, but there's like I said, the you know there, it was an attempt to ensure that Yazidis didn't survive that that attack and that onslaught. So. Um, that's the, that's why it qualifies as a genocide as well because it wasn't uh, you know an attempt to to wipe them out um and and again to come back to what i referenced a moment ago um one of one of the interesting and and kind of grisly differences here is you know with like the the soviet system like the gulag archipelago and things you know that like the soviets didn't really want people to know about that kind of stuff and you know other other attempts at genocide and ethnic cleansing have kind of been attempts have been made to obscure them at least from the outside world whereas isis was quite happy to admit this was you know part of part and parcel of, of their ideology and and in fact they would be doing this to other communities that came into their came under their territory as well so uh, you know some of the best evidence we have of what happened is in isis's own propaganda or from you know straight from the horse's mouth of their own their own recruits so um yeah i mean they were they were proud and boasted about this and, and knew exactly what they were doing and pre-planned it all yeah. Well, with regards to the foreign fighters who joined ISIS, 
can you give us an idea of the numbers who joined, where they were from, and if there are any commonalities among them in regards to motivation, psychological factors, sociological factors, any any commonalities you can think of, if there were any? Mm. Yeah, so I I think it was. I mean, we're we're talking low end estimates here. I think in a lot of in a lot of cases, but I think about over forty thousand people. I mean, at least are thought to have joined ISIS from all over the world. Um, um, you, you're probably looking at five to six thousand from Western Europe, um, at least I would say. Um, again, some of the estimates are, are higher than that. Um, and then you know a few hundred more from North America, from the US, Canada, from Australasia, um, and from the Caribbean as well. So a couple of hundred went from um, Trinidad, um, and you know a handful of others from other Caribbean islands. So if we t- if we take that North America, Western Europe, the kind of Caribbean democracies and Australasia to mean the West, um, you probably, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to say because we don't know exactly who, how many went from some of those countries, but um, you're probably looking at at least 6,000 um, minimum. Um, again, minimum. I just want to, I just want to underline that uh, based, based on the, based on the estimates. And um, I mean, what, one of the things I, I, I'm a bit of a broken record on this. Um, I, I'm happy to continue being a broken record because I don't think, we've really fronted up to how this happened and how that many people were attracted to this group and or how they radicalized in inverted commas. Um, it was very much, a, very much a territorial and geographical phenomenon that we've missed um, and underestimated. And I think one of the reasons we underestimated that was because we, we looked at ISIS propaganda, which was no doubt, no doubt impressive compared to some of the kind of poor amateurish efforts that came before it. Um, but we kind, of, we kind of made that the explanatory factor for why this was happening. Uh, and I just don't, I just don't accept that. I don't accept that 40,000 people from around the world or 6,000 people from Western democracies, um, joined because they were kind of hypnotized by online propaganda. I just don't think that's, that's a satisfactory explanation. And and also it downplays the agency of the people who did this and, and that downplays their kind of personal responsibility in, in the crimes that we're talking about. What do you think did motivate those people if it wasn't the propaganda? Well, motivations and kind of explanatory factors are slightly different but um you know it's very difficult to to know what was going on in somebody's head and especially even even if you ask them people kind of people apply justifications retrospectively that they think sound good or will help their case so it's very difficult on that respect but but there is like i said there's a there's a geographical element to this so so like 75 to 80 percent like over three quarters of the people who joined from those west you know the west broadly broadly conceived um, came from just a handful of countries. So you're looking at France, Belgium, the United Kingdom, um, Germany, Scandinavia, um, these these places. So, uh, and then if you drill it down even more than that, like into the individual countries. So look at um, look at France is a great example because France has made much more in terms of their academics and their, and the government has made much more of an effort to understand why this happened than any other country because they were they were one of the worst affected, and certainly the worst affected by terror attacks. And what they've what they found is that um, some neighborhoods were really badly affected by the phenomenon. Um, so so um, the famous example is Trap, which is about 25 kilometers from Paris, a kind of commune. Uh, and then there's Lunel in the southwest, which was a tiny kind of affluent um, middle-class um, town, which became the capital of French jihad in inverted commas. And then cities like Toulouse and Nice, which were really, really affected by the foreign fighter phenomenon. But then the the curveball is that you have um, you have a city like Marseille, which is twice the size of uh, Toulouse or Nice, which is relatively unaffected by the phenomenon. But it has it has all the socioeconomic conditions uh, that you would want. It has crime, it has poverty, it has the infamous Banlieu that we we talk about the projects uh, for an American audience, um, and it has it has a large Muslim population as well, which which kind of um, this kind of a liberal consensus and a, and a right and far right consensus on this, that the liberal consensus is this is online or because of structural socioeconomic factors. And the far right would have you believe this is all about Islam and Muslims. But, but the, the case of Toulouse, Nice and Marseille kind of th- throws a different light on that because Marseille has a large Muslim population. And it has internet connection, obviously, and it has socioeconomic con- uh, conditions, but it was not affected in the same way. Um, whereas, you know, from Toulouse and Nice, you had dozens of people go from Marseille. I think, I think there were, you know, a handful, one or two who, who traveled to Syria. Um, so fundamentally both of the kind of consensus explanations aren't really right on this. And, 
and what what you're looking at the commonalities or the common factor is we're looking at ground that was prepared over the course of decades um so in Toulouse and Nice you had recruitment networks set up in the early 2000s um that that you know started as three or four people and then a decade later with three or four hundred people in these kind of Salafi jihadi networks um so so it really matters about on the ground physical spaces physical networks and 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 social connections um but it's not it's not just that as well you need um in a lot of these cases you have the ground kind of ideologically prepared by other islamist groups as well so the kind of more militant salafi groups operate in these areas uh, and and in france and belgium particularly have kind of uh, muslim brotherhood uh linked organizations operating on the ground you know doing dawa as they call it proselytization so um you need you need an awful lot of sect um a lot a lot of factors to intersect to have the foreign fighter phenomenon um it's not just it's not just one or the other or one simple explanation and i think that's what we've got wrong i think that's a very important point because i think we all are looking just for a magical single explanation but there's so many factors yeah. that lead to these things with all forms of terrorism as always there's never one singular thing exactly and it is it's one of the frustrating things has been like we uh there's a phrase called normative sociology where we study what the what the uh, what the cause of something ought to be rather than what it is. So we kind of have this debate which um, people want to ascribe the foreign fighter or the terrorist phenomenon to to whatever it, thing it is that they're opposed to anyway. So, you know, on the on the liberal left, you'll have people saying, you know, it's all about, you know, structural and socioeconomic causes. It's all about alienation and Islamophobia and discrimination and racism. Um, further left, you'll have people saying it's all foreign policy. Um, and then on the... on re- kind of reaches of the right and far right you have you know, it's all muslims and islam and foreigners and immigration none of those explanations is satisfactory and they also happen to be the things that those people didn't like before before terrorism was a thing um so so yeah so i think we need to be a bit more serious and a little less politically blinded yeah no definitely definitely well on that topic of that um it, obviously there's been a lot of debate about isis returnees and you know islamic states western recruits have sought to sort of minimize their the severity of their actions and they've positioned themselves more as sinned um sinned against than uh, than in sin so what have you learned from studying the words of foreign fighters who have been caught in comparison to what they were saying at the height of their power oh there's been uh, i mean there's there's been nothing approaching repentance or individual responsibility from from maybe from a handful um but you you kind of have two main narratives. I mean, it's it's almost like a joke now that people say they were a cook or an engineer. You know, they never fought and they never did anything. It's kind of that's the kind of new version of I was just following orders, I guess. Yeah, um, there was a lot of catering the, going on in Syria. Exactly. Yeah, the food <laughs> must have been fantastic in the caliphate. Um, um, but then the other the other element to it is um, people now have heard this. Uh, they've heard our discourse at home, which is that you know this is you know groomers online and people vulnerable people and stuff like that and they're, they're kind of repeating that back to us um so T- tuba gondol is a very good example of that um I, I don't know where she is in the world right now but she was stranded in in northern syria i, I heard that she'd got out via turkey and possibly was on her way back to france but i can't remember where she last was um but you know she was on social media at the time she was all over she was celebrating the paris attacks she was celebrating uh, jihadi John Mohammed Emwazi's, um, atta- you know, his execution videos, uh, and then a few years later, she's saying that, oh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm, I was manipulated. I was brainwashed. And she, you know, she's far from the only one who said that. You know, a lot of them are saying that. Um, and then there's even there's even some people are trying to make it sound like a kind of you know a gap year gone wrong. Like there's some there was a video that went viral a little while ago of a French jihadi uh, woman. Who said, you know, we, 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 you know, some people go to India for a year and they don't like it. We, we went to the caliphate and we decided we made a mistake. And it's like totally detached from what they had done, I think. And, and not, and I don't, I reject that it's detached out of naivety. I think it's, re, you know, detached out of a kind of latent ideological sympathies that, that it's just min- minimized the catastrophe and the violence of what they inflicted on the people who lived there. And that's, I think even, even if people did go and just kind of lived there, and didn't get involved in any of the abuses and things like that, which I've got no doubt that happened as well. Um, it's still not a victimless crime. It's still, it's still, you know, at the very minimum, you have to ask. You know, presumably, you lived in a house, right? Whose house was that before 
uh, ISIS came. You know what? Uh, you know, the, you helped ISIS rule over the civilians in their territory with a kind of with a total totalitarian form of governance. Um, you know, public executions, public lashings, uh, public amputations, and things like that. So, uh, you know, people were living in terror and and fear and under un- a cruel regime. So. It's not. It's not a victimless crime, and that's before we even get started on what happens to the Yazidis. Um, so yeah, there's a huge mismatch between what people were saying in 2014 and 15, and now. And and you have to ask, you know, if if ISIS was still going and still kind of all the triumphalism was still going, would I don't know, think a lot of these people wouldn't have changed their tack at all? To be honest, no, no. One of the things I've noticed, and I'm sure I'm not alone in noticing this, is um, that women ISIS members tend to be treated more as victims. Can you talk to us about what you learned about some of the actions of many female ISIS members? Yeah, no, that's right. There is, especially with the women, there's, um, I mean, in, in fairness, there's quite an effort, and from from women scholars as well who, who study counterterrorism to say, like, you know, there's this very condescending and, um, uh, what's the word, kind of paternalistic discourse surrounding female foreign fighters. So there is a bit of pushback on it. But I mean, it, the the press kind of says that they're brides, which, you know, that's that's the press. I don't take too much issue with that because they're going to do that anyway. Um, I don't think that's that's the the core of the problem. Um, but it does it does still suggest that, they, you know, they only went there to just get married and, and stuff like that, or they were, they were kind of manipulated into going there. Um, it's really... It's really significant that the only Westerners who have been who have faced any kind of charges for what happens to the Yazidis uh, are women, and all of them are in Germany. Um, so the story you mentioned right to kick off this conversation about the five-year-old girl who was killed uh, and died of thirst. Um, the, the first person charged for that was was a woman in her twenties, a German woman. So um, the idea that women weren't complicit in this is. I mean, it's just not accurate. And and the other thing is, you know, even uh, I should have mentioned this before when we were talking about the foreign fighter inflow, but even the the number of recruits, uh, the spike in the number of recruits for ISIS came after their caliphate declaration. It wasn't like there's kind of this narrative that people were going to check out what it was all about and then they dis- they, they got disillusioned and came home. But, you, you know, the, it was the resonance of the, of the caliphate declaration was obviously impactful because if you look at June, July and August, that was when most foreign fighters came, and that was when so large numbers of people joined after after James Foley's beheading, after uh, all their abuses and propaganda was all over front pages, um, and after what they'd done to the Yazidis. So, and a lot of those were women as well. So, a lot of them joined fully in the knowledge that that this was happening, even if they didn't participate in it, in it when they got there. Um, so, I do think some. I'm not. I'm not saying with all of these people the correct way response is you know lock them up and throw away the key. But some sort of personal responsibility needs to be shown, and accountability needs to at least be demonstrated. And and you're just not seeing that. Uh, you're you're seeing, like I said, the manipulation stories. Or I was a cook. I was an engineer. Um, uh, yeah. Or just people. But you know, one of the most farcical things is people saying, you know, I want to come back and and help to prevent radicalization. Like, like, sorry, bullshit. No, like you, you, you pay for your crimes first, and then we'll talk. Um, you can't just, you can't just reposition yourself as you know this, this, you know, expert on this. Now it's just a bit. Uh, yeah, I think we're we're just not showing enough scrutiny. I think of of what's happening, and and with the women especially now. Sorry, this is a bit of a long winded answer, but with with the women now, we're seeing we're seeing what I call celebritization. Um, so I don't. I really don't want to get into the, too much of Shamima Begum's case because I think I think in some ways she's a distraction because she, you know, with so many people joined and and all of it gets focused on this one one young woman. Um, but with her, you see a bit of a celebritization, and every now and then a a photo comes comes out of a, the camps in like Al Hall camp of of Western women in looking like they're kind of doing an ASOS modeling shoot or something, and you look like they're having the time of their lives and. And in the Netherlands, there's a woman who's a woman returnee who's had a who she's had a book written. She's uh, had a play put on about her. Um, yeah, so you, I mean, you, we think the celebritization of Shamima Begum is bad. Like it's even worse in some places. So um, it's just it's just morally unserious, in my view, to 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 kind of put you know these aren't these aren't like pop stars who had a you know a 
a period with drugs and they've kind of rebounded and stuff like that. You know, I don't want to see these people on the kind of good morning Britain no. sofa. No, uh, <laughs> I'm sure many of their victims don't either. So it's, no, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, one, I mean, we briefly sort of touched upon this earlier. I mean, we, we've seen these sort of very polarized debates online about ISIS returnees. Um, and have you seen any sort of groups or organizations who are purposefully trying to polarize and muddy the waters on this topic? And to what end are they doing it? Uh, yes, but I think the problem is more mainstream uh, as well. The, the bigger problem is mainstream. And I think to come back to the celebritization thing, um, I, I understand there are some kind of NGOs and journalists that clearly want people like people like Begum, not just Begum, but some of the foreign fighters who are stranded there to come home. And I, I totally understand that. The people what people and it's their every right to advocate for repatriation um but i think in their efforts to advocate for repatriation and and kind of remodel these people as repentant or um well, like i said i haven't really seen much evidence that they are repentant but but remodel them as as repentant or changed or you know put them in western clothing and stuff i think that's making it worse and that is polarizing it more because because people are kind of digging their heels in a little bit when they see that and it's really it's really getting up people's noses because, and one of the reasons for that, I mean, I'm being a hypocrite because I'm going to talk about Begum, but one of the reasons that Begum herself is so polarizing is because she's she's almost like an avatar that we can project all of our, you know, both sides can project their their positions on the whole phenomenon onto. Um, so there's not, and the, the, there's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of, a lot of this is so unresolved still. Um, and like you said, we've kind of moved on from a lot of the attacks that happened and we've moved, in Britain, we've almost completely moved on from the from the catastrophe of about a thousand of our citizens joining ISIS, um, and there's no there's no Salman Abedi, the Manchester bomber. There's, there's there's no Salman Abedi left to be angry at. He's you know he blew himself up. Um, there's no we don't know the names and the faces of the other foreign fighters. So uh, a lot of people there's a lot of anger around the ISIS episode, which is unresolved, and a lot of that gets projected on the onto the Shamima Begum issue. So. People are cynical, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. But people are cynical, and they're uh, they're angry, and they don't want these people who joined this group, which we all remember what they did. They don't want them to be plastered on the front page, trying to look all kind of Western and and uh, you know and happy and stuff like that. It's just kind of a lot of our a lot of our citizens were killed by the group that these people joined, and. And I just think it's a, and that's our citizens. And like you said, it's kind of when you when you start to talk about Yazidis or Syrians and Iraqis who were you know, suffered under this group, it's kind of you know, spitting on the the graves of those people. So I think we just need to be a bit more a bit more serious. Really. Mm, no, I, don't I agree. Know to put it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, look, one question I've always had is what is the kind of legal situation today with regards to foreign fighters returning to their home countries are many actually being investigated and charged or is it a case people are kind of literally getting away with war crimes yeah i mean it, again it's hard to say so my my research can't um it doesn't make any judgment about like individual people it doesn't bring any allegations against individuals and say this person should be charged it just kind of says that that there's no way that only four German women were involved in these crimes. Like the this is, I'm talking about the cases that have made it to court in in Germany. There's no way it's only that that many. Like this is a much bigger problem that hasn't been uh, dealt with yet. Um, so it's just a kind of plea to a not forget this and b investigate if we can. Um, I I don't know what's going on, you know, with security services and police investigations. I I haven't seen much evidence that there's a concerted effort to investigate whether these people committed um they're called international crimes or atrocity crimes um i've heard from some of the Yazidi organizations on the ground that there's not a huge amount of engagement from western governments um particularly with their kind of with their their documentation efforts um so i think i think one of the things that could be done better is having a better like most like for example in the uk our police has a war crimes unit there could be better links between war crimes units and counterterrorism uh operations um and a lot more sharing of information. That's that's one of the things I've heard from Yazidi uh, advocates. Um, in terms of what's happening now, I mean, we we know that a lot of these people are stranded, and Western governments are preferring not to deal with it or confront that. And to an extent, I, I understand that then they they don't want to confront that or deal with that because because the chances of prosecution are so 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 low that if they did repatriate all these people 
chances are that the vast, the overwhelming majority would go free and walk the streets. Yeah, I've wondered that myself. And is there a particular, well, it sounds silly, but this is, I'm here to ask the silly questions. What is it that makes it so hard from a legal point of view to potentially prosecute these people? What is, what is the, should we say the challenge the government or the police and security services have, do you think? Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm on shaky terrain because I'm no legal expert mm, by, by, right. by any means. But um, uh, no, I, I, I think it's very, very difficult to prove crimes have been committed in a, in a foreign conflict zone, first of all. Uh, it's immensely difficult to prove. But I mean, even from, from the UK's perspective, I think one thing I'm keen to hammer home is that we've had we've had 30 odd years of people joining islamist or jihadi conflicts overseas from like bosnia to chechnya somalia afghanistan people going and fighting with with jihadis and we and even despite that despite decades of it we haven't really put the laws into place to deal with that phenomenon adequately uh, and we and you know and obviously we're seeing the results of that now with the with the, the amount of people who have gone free or are stranded in in northern syria now um so, I mean, it, the, the the worst reflection for me was with the Beatles, with Alexander Cotty and El Shafi El Sheikh, because um, the the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, and this is people can look this up. This is online. Um, Crown Prosecution Service basically determined that there was no way we could have confidence that we'd be able to secure a conviction if they came back to Britain, um, which is just shocking when you think about it. Like these are these are two of the most notorious people who joined ISIS from our country. Um, there are tons of witness statements about their treatment of captives and hostages, and um, there's probably more evidence of their involvement in criminal, uh, in like abuses and criminality and terrorist activity than anyone else. Yet, yet we, what we've had to do is offload them to the Americans, uh, which which is a brilliant solution given the circumstances. That's the best thing that could have happened because the Americans are going to be able to 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 you know make sure that they face justice. Um, but can you imagine if they'd come home and, and just gone free? It would have been appalling. It's shocking, yeah. I'm just amazed. You know, I think you said it earlier about, like, why haven't we updated our laws? What's going on? It's not like this has happened just suddenly. Yeah. We make an assumption sometimes that the authorities are more on it than they should be, uh, more on it than they actually are, sorry. So do you remember the Gatwick drone incident? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember, Now, most people, I think, would assume that there would be sort of procedures in place for a rogue drone at an airport and then that episode kind of just showed that there were no procedures there was no thinking there was no strategy about how to deal with a rogue drone at an airport which is actually a very dangerous thing and i kind of feel like that's sort of a bit like the government and isis returnees at the moment mm-hmm. yeah no i, th- I think so and, and certainly certainly over the year like uh I think there's about 450 have already come back, and only about 40 of those have, have um, I think, have been convicted. Um, not all of them for offences relating to ISIS, by the way. Um, some of it criminality or terror offences when they came home. Um, but yeah, and it, we just—I mean, it took us by surprise, and it shouldn't have really. Um, and even even down to not just to the foreign fighters, like we, one of the things that happens every time, every time a new conflict involving um involving muslims basically happens uh we have charities uh which are kind of islamist front groups go and go and you know they say they're raising money for charity and for humanitarian aid but what they're doing is raising money for their you know their preferred armed group but uh, again this is not always jihadi groups like in a lot of cases this is you know the more the more kind of muslim brotherhood type influenced influenced organizations that fight in these conflicts um and that happened with Syria in the early days. We had we had charity convoys going uh, going to Syria and, and raising raising money for different actors in the conflict. Um, and we didn't we didn't we couldn't get to grips with that. And th- I mean, that's one of the reasons that William Shawcross is getting such a such a hiding from from certain quarters now is that he made a, he made a real effort when he was at the charity commission to put a stop to that. Um, but obviously, that gets respun as this guy targeted Muslim charities. Well, no, he was targeted. He was targeting, you know, weapons and and fighters being funneled to conflict zones. So yeah, and I, I think you you mentioned before that we we're moving on from these things, and 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 we I, I think we're making the same mistake again by not really attempting to understand the ISIS phenomenon 
and why why so many of our citizens were attracted to that cause and that group we're just asking for it to happen again and i don't i don't really see a reason that it won't happen again uh maybe not to the same scale but you know you, all you need is another conflict to open up another jihadist group uh i mean look at uh, who knows what's happening in, in central africa and mozambique right now uh it's not not as easy to get to as syria and pro- possibly not as glamorous a location but um but certainly that kind of thing can open up and and become another beacon for foreign fighters um so yeah i don't i don't see any reason it won't happen again but we're not, we're going to be unprepared for it again sadly yeah what do yazidi survivors think about the legal response in the west to isis returnees do they have confidence that there will be justice so from from the survivor testimony that i was able to collect through yazda which is one of the yazidi ngos um there's a lot of pessimism uh among the survivors there and this is the thing they you know they they know about the debates that are happening in western countries uh they know that only a few people have made it to court uh in germany um you know they don't they, they don't always know all the details but they're vaguely aware of of what's happening and they're very pessimistic and 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 insulted as well and and not just the survivors but like the yazidi groups that operate in the west as well are just you know, you can imagine when they see one of these people who joined this organization, which was so brutal towards them, kind of being, you know, being positioned as as a victim themselves in our discourse and public debate. Uh, it's incredibly difficult for them to see that for obvious reasons. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, they know vaguely what's going on. Again, one of the things they said was there's not a great deal of communication um, from Western governments. So, I, I mean, but that gets to the whole... I know. Obviously, I know Western governments need to be responsible for their own citizens first and foremost. But, but just in general, there's a whole kind of parochial approach to this, to this issue, where we're only looking at foreign fighters through the lens of whether they're a security threat to us or a terror threat to us, and not really dealing with the kind of moral uh, and legal reckoning that needs to come out of what happened. The, the whole foreign fighter debate is just about those individuals and and again we're we're veering towards them becoming celebritized and and their victims in Iraq and Syria are completely erased from that debate and conversation so for every for, for every kind of fawning piece over a foreign fighter who's stranded or a recruit I should say not necessarily a fighter it would be nice if we heard from more from these idiots who, who are stuck in camps in Iraq as well because they are living in wretched conditions in iraq most of the time a lot of them have not been able to return home to sinjar um and actually as we've seen with pretty much every genocide of the 20th century what one of the things we saw was neighbors turning on neighbors so um yazidis feel immense distrust towards the local kind of tribes and families that live around the region uh, and, that, and that prevents them from returning home because in a lot of cases those people joined with or allied with isis or just let the assault happen. So there's there's immense trauma in the Yazidi community that is it's just I don't I don't think the Yazidis will recover for a lifetime at least. I mean certainly the people who live through this are, are never going to get over it. I mean their their lives are, are just unthinkably damaged. Uh and it's just not really something we're willing to talk about. And it's not just about the nature of who, you know, the conversations around ISIS and the kind of awkward silence around Islamist extremism. I mean, genocide is not an easy thing to talk about. It's not an easy thing for us to understand or get to grips with. So there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, definitely. How has your report been received? And have you had any sort of government or media interest in it? So, yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised by um, the response, actually. I'm not... Uh, no, I'm by no means like a big name. Uh, so maybe like if I was very fortunate to get Tom Holland uh, involved in in this, which helped it reach a much wider audience. Uh, Lord Walney as well, who's um, former Labour MP, John Woodcock, who's been appointed uh, as the as independent government advisor on political violence. Um, he was a big supporter of this from the start. Um, you know, he's he's got a foreword, a brief foreword in the report as well. So yeah, I think. A bit more government engagement would be great, but having said that, there wasn't in the report. You know, as you know, you've read it. There wasn't a huge amount of kind of you know f- tangible recommendations for governments to take forward. It was more just about building a picture. Um, but yeah, the response has been great. I mean, you know, people like yourself, I'm immensely grateful to 
for your interest in this and to helping helping get it in front of a wider audience so um i think it's just a a battle of attrition for me really is to keep you know no don't just let that be one report that came out and then we never come back to it's just to keep that in the conversation and keep talking about it and writing about it and i'm i'm working on the next phase of the research now which i'm hoping hoping will be like a long-term project to to keep trying to get more information and more research um into the public domain on this subject so yeah i mean if there's anyone who listen who's listening in who wants to reach out or help or has any ideas like i'm always happy to talk and want to hear those ideas so um yeah that's good is there anything listeners can actually do to help the azidis get justice justice is difficult there's plenty there's plenty we can do to uh support yazidis so there's a bunch of yazidi organizations like yazda was the one that i worked on worked with on this piece of research um one of the more prominent ones which um has amal clooney the leading human rights barrister involved with them um there's there's an organization called Nadia's Initiative as well, which is uh, the Nobel Prize winner Nadia Murad Bas. Uh, she she uh, founded that organization. Is involved with them. Um, there's a really small NGO called the Yazidi Emergency Support, uh, which uh, is pretty much a, a one woman setup for a, a lovely lady called Anne, uh, who was in, immensely helpful to me um in helping to raise awareness and connect with the right people when this report came out so uh, i couldn't recommend people supporting her enough because she was just you know she was just one person with you know just you know she's not yazidi or anything like that she's just uh uh you know just works in uh works in health and just was so moved by what happened that she decided she wanted to help and you know this the, the small ngos need the help as well so um i think I think supporting those organizations would be a great start. Um, look, things, simple things. I know it's a boring answer, but simple things like writing to MPs never hurts. Um, you know, this sounds like a massive ask, but you know, if you want to write to an MP and send the the paper uh, as well, you know, these things help. Um, but yeah, there's just it, it is it is a battle of attrition. So the more we can keep all of us making noise about it, uh, the better, mm. I think. Mm. No, fantastic. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? Do you have any like final thoughts or anything? Um, nothing, nothing profound, but uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, look, uh, I think brought, you know, away from the Yazidi, um, the, what happens to the Yazidi, which is terrible. I mean, I would, I would love it if people who listen to this read the report. I think you can, you can sit down, grab a coffee or a tea, and and read it cover to cover in about an hour. Um, it's not. I'm not going to pretend it's a nice or an easy read. It's not. Um, but but I think it's. In, you know, I would say this because I'm biased because I wrote it. But I think it's important to 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 read that. Um, but away from that, I think I think there's a lot we can do to have a bit more of a serious conversation about jihadism in in the West, in Britain in particular. Um, there's a lot more to do, and I think. I think there's this perception that maybe because there's not the same amount of funding or interest on the ISIS phenomenon or like jihadism, I think we kind of think that that's that that's gone away. Um, you know, we're looking for the next threat or we're looking for the new and exciting things. And I don't, I, I think we need more historical work to understanding what happened there. Uh, and I don't think we should forget it just because that's not where the funding is or it's not the fashionable thing to to talk about. I think, uh, I mean, if you look at Look at the seven seven bombings, right? That was two thousand five. The next fatal attack we saw in the UK was the Lee Rigby murder, which was eight years later. Um, so, so this this has a long, long horizon. A long we're, we're talking about a long time frame and a long, yeah, a long life of jihad in, in the West, basically. And I, I don't see any evidence that it's it's gone away. Uh, I think there's every chance that the problems of jihadism are actually more but more ahead of us than behind us. Uh, simply because of the numbers that have been involved previously. And that's not to make a prediction because we don't know what's going to happen. Things could change. Um, But there's just no reason that more won't happen. Um, So I think we need to be prepared for that um, and stop the insane and and debates that have happened around this stuff before. Uh, And just, I think one thing we can all do is stop it just being swallowed by the culture war, stop it becoming a kind of polarizing issue where we just take where we just adopt the opposite position to what our kind of tribal political opponents think um, th- this is too important for it to become a culture war issue um 
but I'm not optimistic about that because even COVID became a cold war issue to an extent. So, so I'm, I'm I'm very pessimistic. That's my final thought. Yeah, no, fair enough. I could understand it. I can understand it. But uh, yes, but anyway, well, look, Liam, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Sure. Yeah. Um, so just uh, keep an eye on Counter Extremism Project website. Like if I do new research, it'll it'll go on there. Um, I write quite frequently for Unheard as well on terrorism, extremism, political violence, broadly conceived, uh, occasionally for The Spectator, um, on on Twitter as well. Liam SD12, I think is my, my username. So um, yeah, you might regret following me, but if you want to, that <laughs> more than welcome to. Um, but no, just above all, like, thanks so much for having me on. And I think just, you know, the reason that I've been pleasantly surprised by the response to the report is, you know, opportunities like this to to speak about it. So it needs, you know, it needs people to be passionate and interested ab- about the subjects as well. So I'm, I'm tremendously grateful. So thank you. My pleasure. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 